0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16, it's on page 1491, and I do this time encourage you to actually do a physical, I know that most times it kind of works because we project it up there, but this morning um, the text is a real doozy, (laughs) and so um, I think it would benefit you if you actually open your own physical Bible so that you can kind of have it open for a while. Um, So we're doing a sermon series right now that we're calling Too Good to Miss, uh, which is where we're going backwards in the lectionary so that I get the opportunity to preach on some texts that I didn't get to preach on while I was on sabbatical over the summer. So with the idea that these texts are too good to miss, we can't skip them, we've got to go back and do them together. This morning we're we're reading this parable of Jesus from Luke uh, 16, and I actually heard a wonderful sermon on this text this summer preached by a colleague of mine, Uh, named Jennifer Holmes Coran. And uh, so she's the one who got me thinking about this text in a new way, so I want to acknowledge Pastor Jen's helpful insight uh, on this text. So let's read the parable. Um, Page 1,491, Luke 16. I can promise you there is nothing like this, nothing else like this in the whole Bible. Luke 16, first 13 verses. Listen to God's word. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is it I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. So the manager said to himself, Well, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job, I'm not strong enough to dig. And I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. And he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied, and he told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly, which means like cleverly or craftily or smartly, because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is the word of the Lord. So, if you're not thoroughly confused by that, you were not paying attention. There's There's a pretty standard agreement among biblical scholars that this is the most confusing passage in all of the New Testament. Nobody knows what to do with it. And we had the benefit today of reading it in translated English. If you read it in the Greek, it's even more off the wall. It's even more confusing. Our English translators are are trying to hold it together for us, trying to make it seem a little more cogent. Um, And I I know we just read it, but I want to do a little recap of what happens in this parable. So, Jesus says, there's a rich man who hears that his business manager has been squandering his possessions. And we don't really know what that means, that he's squandering the possessions. Maybe he's been kind of lazy with the possessions. Maybe he's literally been stealing the possessions. We just don't know. All we know is that the business manager has failed to do his job. So the rich man calls his manager into his office and he says, "Hey, I've heard about your mismanagement of my wealth. I'm really upset. You no longer work here anymore. You're fired." So the business manager begins to panic. Because this obviously puts him in a really tough spot. He doesn't know what to do. He's middle management. And so what skills does that give him? He's not strong enough to dig. And he's too proud to beg, how on earth is he going to make a living? How is he going to make ends meet for himself and his family? And then it occurs to him, hey, I know. I know what I'll do. Before they escort me out of the building and cancel my company email account, I'll start giving away my boss's money. I'll reach out to these different people who owe him money, and I will take huge chunks out of their debt. We're talking about tens of thousands of dollars to each individual client. And then that way, they no longer have to pay it. And so the manager is thinking to himself, then these other business people will be pleased with me. They'll be happy with me. And then maybe they'll do some favors for me. Maybe he's thinking like, They'll let me crash on their couches for a while. Maybe he's thinking, "Mm, they'll offer me employment. Although, who's going to offer employment to, like, a guy who's just, like, stealing from his previous boss? Anyway. So, the business manager is hoping that if he can do something really crafty here, if he can do something really shrewd, he will keep himself afloat financially. Okay. Now, if we were to push pause right here in the parable... And ask ourselves, I wonder what Jesus has to say about this behavior, right? What, what's the Sunday school lesson here? <laughs> what does Jesus tell us to do with other people's money? Well, let's find out, right? Verse 8, if your Bibles are open, look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, Then the master... And now, by the way, one of the things that makes this parable so confusing is that the word master here in the Greek... It's unclear if it's re- referring to the rich man or to Jesus himself. Like, we don't know. And there's literally no way of knowing. So verse 8 says, The master... Um, um, i got to find my spot. So, sorry, I've got to be a little more clear on that. The master is either Jesus or um, it's this rich man in the world of the parable. So we don't know if now, in verse 8, we're at the point of Jesus giving his commentary about the parable or if the parable is still going. We're just, we're totally unsure. So the master, whoever that is, if it's Jesus or the rich man, commends the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. He says, For the people of this world, and that's like secular people, the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Like, what? And then the master goes on. And again, who's the master? Is this Jesus or is this the rich man in the parable? We really don't know. But the master goes on. He says, I tell you. It kind of sounds like Jesus because that's the cadence he uses. I tell you. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone you will be welcomed into earthly or sorry into eternal dwellings use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings what in the what does that mean And then the text goes on from there and it says uh, some of these truisms about money and about possessions and about priorities and they're all fine and good and and they're totally true but it never really returns back to the parable. It never really returns back and explains what on earth is happening. And so at the end of the parable we have no idea what to do with this text. One commentator Um, Reverend Debbie Thomas, asks these questions of the parable, she says. Why does the rich man, or Jesus, we don't know which one, why does the rich man, or Jesus, commend the dishonest manager? Why does Jesus offer his followers such an unsavory character as a role model? In what sense are the children of the light supposed to take their cue of, uh, from the shrewdness and the self-interest of this scoundrel? And why is this parable followed by so many convoluted platitudes and glosses about money and stuff? And the answer is, we don't know. Some commentators say that maybe the business manager is actually a good person because he's he's freeing his boss's debtors from an unpayable debt that might have, you know, saddled them for generations and generations. Eh, I don't buy it. It feels like a stretch to me. The fact is, what we have here is a teaching from Jesus that we cannot make sense of. And what we have here is a teaching from Jesus that feels like it runs contrary to the rest of his teaching, and we don't know what to do with it. And like I said, according to many, this this is the hardest and the most confusing passage in uh, certainly the New Testament, maybe the whole Bible, so why are we talking it today is the, mind in your, is the question in your mind. Why are we talking about this today? Why is this particular text too good to miss? What I want to talk about today isn't so much about this text as much as I want to talk about the nature of the Bible and the nature of the Christian faith itself. You know, I can't help but think that if God wanted to make himself perfectly clear in Luke chapter 16, he very much could have done that, right? But he didn't, and he doesn't. And instead, he gives us something else. He gives us this text that we can't quite handle. It's this text that we can't get our arms around. He gives us something that frustrates us and that confuses us. He gives us something to struggle with and to wrestle with. He gives us this thing to kind of wonder about. And generally speaking, that's not what you and I want from God. We don't like a faith that seems less than logically airtight. We don't like it. We don't like a theology with lingering questions. We don't like a Bible that is written in multiple ancient genres over hundreds and hundreds of generations, by dozens and dozens of different authors, with all kinds of harmonic dissonance throughout. We don't like that kind of Bible. But it's what we've got. And while you and I might be very displeased about those things, God, frustratingly enough, doesn't seem all that concerned by it. And it makes me wonder, maybe God was very intentional when he gave us a faith that we can't quite handle. Maybe God was very intentional when he gave us something that we can't totally get our arms around. Maybe God was very purposeful when he gave us a Bible that frustrates us and confuses us. And maybe that's actually where the life of Scripture is in the wrestling with it, and in the asking questions of it, and in the wondering about it. Maybe, rather than giving us what we wanted to satisfy our need for control, God gave us what we needed, which was to grow as his people. I worry sometimes how much our rightness and our need to be right gets in the way of us actually practicing our Christian faith. For some reason, and I could hypothesize here, but for some reason, we Christians have a tendency to place rightness above all other spiritual virtues. In fact, I would argue that we tend to think that it's our rightness that makes us Christians in the first place. Like, we're Christians because we believe the right things. And we're Christians because we're correct in what we think. And we're Christians because we subscribe and sign on the bottom line to these specific ideas about the realities of the universe. But is that the case? Is it our rightness that makes us Christians? It seems to me that of all of the things that Jesus wants us to be, being right is not at the top of that list. Blessed are the correct? Uh uh-uh. uh. I didn't read that anywhere. It feels like that correctness, that need to be right, the need to know what's right, and to tell other people right, and to feel that we're right, feels like that's much more about us than it is about Jesus. That's the sense I get from this text. It's much more about us and what we want to control than about Jesus and who he actually is. Now, I want to be very, very clear about a couple of things just to make sure that I'm not misunderstood. I do not mean to cast any dispersions on the Bible at all. In fact, I mean to do the opposite of that. I mean to lift it up. I do not mean to shake anyone's faith in the Bible. I do not mean to suggest that the Bible is anything less than God's divine word to us because that is what it is. It's not my intention here. But what I do want is for the Bible to come alive to us. And for the Bible to challenge us. And I want the Bible and the Christian faith to feel so much bigger than our so-called mastery of it. And rather than have us thinking about how we have the faith and we have the Bible and we have God, I want us to feel that God is the one who has us. You see the difference there? Oh, it's just so important. There's a posture that we can take where we stand over God and we stand over the Bible where our faith is doubtless and we are right and our theology is airtight and systematic or there's a posture we can take where the Bible actually stands over us. There's a posture that we can take where we have God and we have our faith and those things belong to us. And there's a posture we can take where God is the one who has us and we belong to him. This is why every single week We pour out the waters of baptism. It is a reminder, not so much that we have God, although we do, and there's lots of sermons to be preached there, but it is not so much that we have God, it is so much more that God has us, and our rightness is not a factor in that scenario. Just ask a newborn, newly baptized infant about their rightness. And you will discover that they are right about less than even you. And yet God reaches down out of heaven and he grabs the little one and he says, You are right. No, no, no. He says, you are mine. Because God loves us. Because he loves us. Because he loves us. Because he loves us. us. So, Luke chapter 16. What is this text about? First of all, I don't know. Second of all, here's my best guess I think that Luke chapter 16 is a lesson in humility not just on the level that we've been talking about this morning, but also on the level of the parable itself. So in this text, Jesus is teaching, and the text before and after what we read, the text identifies that there are two audiences for Jesus uh, in, in this teaching, his disciples and the Pharisees. So there's two different audiences there. And the one thing that the disciples and the Pharisees have in common is that both of these groups tended to think very highly of themselves. Both of these groups tended to believe that they were God's chosen and preferred people. Both groups tended to walk around with a degree of confidence that they were right and that God favored them for their rightness. So in front of the Pharisees, and in front of the disciples, who does Jesus take time out to praise? White collar criminals. White collar criminals. That's right. Not the ultra religious Pharisees with their conservative legalism and their self importance. And not these. Newly popular disciples with their progressive ideas and their readiness to sit at the right and left hand of Christ in the kingdom. No, no, no. Jesus takes this opportunity in front of the Pharisees and the disciples alike to extol the shrewdness of white-collar criminals, (laughs) a group of people that literally no one can respect. now that feels like jesus to me cuz there's a little bit of an ouch right and with jesus there's always a little bit of an ouch and then there's a little bit of a aha and the message i think is this humble yourself take a deep breath let it out and humble yourself. There's a message of surrender here. Surrender. Which is this spiritual idea I've been thinking about very hard for at least four years and three months in my sobriety journey. uh, In my dealing with my alcoholism. Surrender. What on earth does that look like as a child of God? Humble yourself. God's truth, as elusive as it can be sometimes, can be discovered literally anywhere. And you not need be the source. Humble yourself. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank for your hard word to us today. Uh, maybe we stumbled upon something together. Maybe we learned something. And maybe the preacher was off his rocker. Either way, today we celebrate the fact that it's not so much that we have you but that you have us. We thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the truth that you invite us to live into. We thank you for your heart for us and for this world. And we thank you for this invitation we have now to join you at your table and to take you into ourselves. In your name we pray, amen.